Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Back to the Movies podcast series that we're doing here on FilmNerds.com. I am your host, Matt Scalisi, and uh, joining me this time uh, to talk about the next film on the list, uh, our regular contributor, Ben Flanagan. Thanks for joining me, Ben. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And uh, kind of a uh, – we've so far in the top ten – you know, I, I would say it's it's definitely been it's been hit and miss. I mean, risky business to me. That's a slam dunk. I understand why it was a big hit. Then you get this uh, staying alive that we talked about last week. Absolute mess. Uh, and sudden impact, which is what we're going to be talking about today. It's it's kind of an interesting. Uh, you know, this is the this is the kind of movie that that really makes this series interesting to me because this movie is definitely a time capsule for me and and when i say that i mean that i think this is not a movie that you know if you just straight up stuck it in a can and released it today and and it had no context around it i don't know that this movie works on that level today i think it's a very peculiarly 1983 movie and we'll and we'll get into that but but uh first of all i want to ask you ben coming into this um did you have any experience with the Dirty Harry series of films? Because I'll, I'll I'll go ahead and tell you, I this is the first time I've seen a Dirty Harry movie. Yeah, I mean, can I give you some background, some context? Please the, do. Yeah, behind my exploration of the Dirty Harry franchise. Yeah, I want to hear it. Well, back in the early part of last decade, around fall 2003, I really got into gritty crime dramas based on my interest in Joe Carnahan's movie, the 2002 crime thriller NARC with Jason Patrick and Ray Liotta. Sure. I really felt like it sort of embodied or followed that path of hardened, no-nonsense police dramas, groundwork that was laid out really by the French Connection and Serpico from the early 70s, still sort of around that new Hollywood era, which put a pretty heavy influence on realism. So I sort of set out to find more of that settings i guess a fairly strict criteria uh that a lot of films sort of failed to meet as i found out later and i just wanted very simple cops and robbers movies that went straight to the point and you know you've got a crime you solve it though i was never really interested in anything that might pass for a television show or just another episode of law and order right so i made a list of things like prince in the city to Live and Die in L.A., Colors, The Seven Ups, Coogan's Bluff, which also stars Eastwood, and then Dirty Harry. I knew there were sequels at the time, but I didn't know that there were four. So I thought that it would kind of be like killing five birds with one stone there. I've got five gritty cop dramas that are just kind of sitting there ready for me to watch. And I got most of these at the public library in Tuscaloosa, and after The Enforcer, I guess I just sort of got Harry Callahan fatigue just because I felt like they were a little cheesy. They really ran together, and I didn't find the sense of humor in them that I found this time around. Uh, plus, it looked like Clint was sort of getting older in the series, and it didn't really appeal to me anymore. But here we are with this assignment that brings me back to the franchise, which I think – I really honestly – I think they should revive it at least one more time before Clint kicks it. And this sort of let me finish what I started – and since I couldn't time it right with Netflix and I missed it on cable, I know it came on AMC recently, I went and found a cheap DVD four-pack of the first four Dirty Harry movies, and I bought that. 
Yeah, and you know, I I did watch this this from from a TV feed. Although I've since gone and, and found a way to watch the uh, ed, the unedited versions of the scenes that I would have seen edited in the context of the movie. And basically, it sounds like what I missed, aside from some swearing, was uh, I, I missed some some bullet wounds to the groin. I think is probably <laughs> what, the main thing that I was missing there. But yeah, I mean, Ben, you mentioned you mentioned this series and and how you kind of got Dirty Harry fatigue a few movies into it, you know, and I did I did appreciate this movie on a on a sort of I guess a little bit of an ironic level and and I enjoyed watching it, but I definitely this is the first time I've ever even seen a Dirty Harry movie and I had Dirty Harry fatigue because it's just and I, and I don't think it's I don't think it's the fault of the movie. I think this is a movie that obviously was so uh, such a big pop culture uh, phenomenon this franchise uh, that that it has pervaded everything and at this point the go ahead make my day line uh, is it's I mean it has no impact to somebody like me in 2011 watching this movie for the first time because I've grown up hearing that line to death you know and it just doesn't have it's really, really hard for me to to uh, take myself out of all that cultural context I have and hear that line in the movie, and and have it make any impact on me. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Once it hits, you're basically saying to yourself, "Oh, I guess this is where he says, go ehead, make my day.' Right. Wait yeah. for it, and then he says it, and then it's like, okay, well, that's it. That's the time capsule that you're talking about. But it's been parodied in so many different movies. I don't know if the Naked Gun movies. Probably did it, but uh, other other cop spoofs, I'm sure. Television, late night comedy, I'm sure had its way with it. Even President Reagan said it at one point, right. I think, a few years later. Yeah. So absolutely, I understand that. But I think that the Dirty Harry, the original Dirty Harry movie, had there not been any sequels to it, I think that we would still be looking back at that as one of those great gritty crime dramas. I really think it stands alone. It stands alone well actually as one of those films, as an example of one of those, as an early, a really solid early Clint Eastwood movie. But as we found out, um, even before that, Clint Eastwood, with Clint Eastwood comes sequels, I guess, and comes franchises, as we learned with the Man With No Name trilogy. So it was something that we should get used to. But I don't, I, I, I'm sort of thinking back, I don't have it in front of me, but is this, are those the only two real franchises that Clint Eastwood was a part of in terms of film? Well, yeah, I mean, to my knowledge, I, I think that's those are those are his big things that made him a movie star. And I mean, he, he had obviously done enough other work. I think you could argue he did a lot of the rest of his work based on the persona he established for himself in the Man with No Name movies and in the Dirty Harry movies. Because if you look at a lot of the rest of his career, most of those other characters, uh, especially in the in the mainstream movies, he did. They're basically variations of, of you know, Blondie and and Harry Callahan essentially. So, I, I think if, even if you even if you didn't want to say he was involved in other franchises, I think these two franchises you mentioned, basically everything he did for the most part was was built off of the the characters he created in those in those two franchises. And he was, I mean, he by the time we're we're getting to sudden impact. It's the it's the fourth movie in the franchise, and uh, I mean it was it was basically uh, he he got a deal for doing the 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 director actor cut for him apparently according to what I've been reading uh, was his deal was that he gets sixty percent of 
profits on the project, uh, which is – I mean that's – I imagine that's pretty much unheard of even for – I don't know that there's a lot of actor-directors still out there, but I mean a guy of this stature, a guy who was this big of a movie star and who directed his own movies, I think it would probably be – it would be very difficult to find somebody of comparable stature uh, who had that kind of pull both in front of and behind the camera. Yeah, totally. Um, and this movie was a big hit, too. I mean, obviously, this is your top ten of 1983. Yeah, it made $67.6 million. And so if you're doing the math, uh, Eastwood getting 60% of the profits, he made roughly $30 million off of this movie. <laughs> good Lord. Yeah. And back in 1983, that's, yeah, that's a big pretty good, deal. that's pretty good money in 83. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, I watched this movie for the first time today, Matt, and I sort of took notes – as I was watching, sort of doing, a, I guess, what you could call a viewer commentary, I guess. And I kind of want to start just towards the beginning before we get into a lot of the, the heavy, heavy themes that arise out of this movie, delivered with such um, stern seriousness by many of its characters, uh, especially the, the female lead, right. the wooden female lead. But anyway, I mean, if we just kind of start out with the opening credits, and from what I gather, this is uh, a classic Dirty Harry opening credit sequence where you're just sort of floating throughout the city uh, with these very plain white titles, kind of like Rocky, I guess, right? is what it reminded me of. But, I mean, I'm sure that this is something that you've experienced, and I think you've heard, uh, you, you've probably talked about it quite a bit uh, during your series, is the music. And here we have original music by Lalo Schifrin. But this movie, the, the opening music to me sounds nothing like the actual score we hear throughout the rest of the movie. The opening music, it sounds something like you would hear from the deep cuts from the Seinfeld and N- NYPD it's, blues. It's very, it's bad, yeah, composers. it's bad jazz, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, 80s music really did all it could to destroy original film composing altogether. I think it really just tried during that era just to get rid of it so that we could forget about it. You would never know from this music that it was from one of the legitimate kings of, of jazz. You know, Lalo Schifrin, he's a, he's a legend. Uh, he's a legendary film composer, but he's a legendary jazz musician too. And I really wonder what we will consider this decade's synthesizer or drum machine, this decade that we're in now. Yeah. Maybe that, maybe that Middle Eastern lady moaning thing. Um, <laughs> but honestly, it really kind of took me out of it before – the film even got going. And again, just talk a little bit about that and your experience with it so far. Yeah. I mean, the music in these 1983 movies has been very synthesizer heavy. And I think at one point in this, in this series, I kind of went down the list and just went back, back over it for myself and, and tried to see how many of the scores didn't have any synthesizer that I could remember, at least not prominently. It's, it's a really, really low percentage. And you know, it, what it does is it makes the, the scores that that were sort of more traditional scores uh, or just non-synthesizer-based scores, it made them stick out a little bit more to me. And, and you know, really, there's a couple of those, like like High Road to China, for example. Not, not a great, memorable movie, but, you know, it's so refreshing to go and hear this kind of just classic, you know, blockbuster movie score uh, in a 1983 movie in the middle of all these. And to be fair... I have enjoyed some of the synthesizer uh, scores that that I've had here in 1983. I mean, for example, I think the music in uh, the original music that we get in uh, in Risky Business is actually really good, and it fits the movie really well. Um, but 
you know, yeah, it, it's 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 unfortunate that that I, I guess you know I, I'd have to go back and look and see what was happening in the years prior to this. But I mean, you look at the late seventies and how many just iconic classic scores were being done back then. And it really, we're just talking about a few years later, and we're talking five years, you know, you know, five years later, essentially that that it's almost all synthesizer based, and and uh, a lot of um, pop musicians that end up doing the scores for movies. I've noticed in, in a lot of these cases. So, you know, it was it was just a very strong, fast moving trend to kind of go with that new wave sound, I guess. Absolutely, and the fashion in this too really distracted me early on before I could really sort of lock in and get going. I mean, I, I saw Clint walk in wearing these sunglasses, and I thought to myself, "Who wore those granny sunglasses better, Clint or Arnold Schwarzenegger in the Terminator the it's next the same year?" Sunglasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually saw on IMDb uh, shortly after that it said Clint Eastwood is seen wearing gargoyle sunglasses, which would later <laughs> surface in the Terminator. I couldn't believe it, but I just think the '80s just gave us so much that we want to erase from our memories and from our, <laughs> our history. But, um, and again, you, you, you talk about this being a time capsule. The language, too, in this movie is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, you, you, one, th- one interesting thing I noticed is that opening scene, not, not the scene where the guy gets shot, but the opening courtroom scene, that first punk that we encounter uh, in the courtroom and in the largest elevator on Earth at the beginning is Rafter Man from Full Metal Jacket who was Matthew Modine's fellow journalist in Vietnam, the guy who says, don't look so puked out, better luck next time, fool. Right. And then That's right, yeah. Clint Eastwood, you know, <laughs> does his little be careful where the dog shits you monologue. Right. Uh, that really sorts of really sort of thrusts us into Harry's world. Um, but then, I mean, we move into this diner robbery again. We talked about it where he says the famous line. And I actually think the diner robbery gives you this feeling that Quentin Tarantino might have actually taken a little bit of note. Uh, it, it came into it. my mind thinking of watching that scene. Obviously, the 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 Pulp Fiction right. opening sequence. Yeah, it, it, I, that definitely did. You know, I don't know if it's just kind of the the imagery of of this kind of well lit, populated diner, and then all of a sudden it just turns it just turns violent in a hurry. You know. Well, and also with the exception of the uncomfortably casual reference to rape as a party. Made by one of the robbers. Right. I think he's grabbing uh, a lady and says, you and me, we're about to go party or, or something. And there's a lot of casual rape reference in this entire movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I started kind of getting worried as I was watching it because immediately we have this room full of African-American bad guys who are taking this restaurant hostage. And I thought, oh, gosh, this is just going to be the most racist, r- blind, you know, racist thing ever <laughs> that wasn't considered racist back in the day. Uh, but you just kind of have this glorious Reagan era gun toting movie. I mean, you think about this and things like Rambo two, I'm not exactly sure what year that came out, but it's just like the glory of the gun. A man and his gun will get things done. This, um, one man standing for justice and he'll kill if he has to. Um, and, And I think really, you know, even though this idea that, that this movie is putting out there, I mean, the, the, the first dirty Harry movie you can say was kind of, originated this this idea and then you know it was already it had already been sort of mocked in you know the death wish movies and stuff like that but this idea uh of vigilante justice being being the hero uh and it's not even really supposed to be that equivocal i mean it's supposed to and and all the all the dialogue around it this movie 
and and I, I haven't seen the rest of the franchise. I imagine the franchise is this way. It's about the idea that the justice system uh, can't protect citizens, and that it's out there to protect criminals, basically. And so you need guys like this who uh, throw things like civil rights to the side, basically, and just <laughs> shoot first and ask later. It's really uh, – it feels to me like sort of a conservative – social commentary of some kind and and it's you know there's a lot of that going on in 1983 believe it or not this this is uh this idea even is sort of brought up in psycho 2 uh where there's there's kind of this early scene where they they try to infuse the movie with this idea that uh you know look the the court system cares more about the serial killer than they do you know the the citizens and uh you know i, I think you're right i think it's a it's a reagan era vibe and and it's amazing that a movie that is about that it's a movie that is that is kind of drawing upon this this uh emotion that people have of yeah i want i want i want cops out there you know shooting these guys don't worry about bringing them to trial <laughs> that movie like that really hit with the public i mean it's 70 million dollars you know yeah and it's been a while since i've seen the dirty harry films that preceded this one but i really started wondering at what point did the gun start to become a central character right. in the series. I mean, if you look at the reissued DVDs, there's really no difference between any of the covers. They all have this white background with Eastwood's face and his magnum right. breaking through the glass of the camera lens. And I mean, at, at some point in the series, maybe even as early as Dirty Harry, these films really sort of became B-movie parody, which I certainly wouldn't put past a smart guy like Eastwood. I think he was really uh, finding his groove, coming into his own as a filmmaker. At this point, and it's almost as ridiculous sometimes as the Naked Gun movies, which I mentioned earlier. This isn't the French Connection at all. It's an action movie. It's a comedy. Even we get one-liners. I wrote down a few here. Yeah, he's at drop this, a few he, of those. Yeah, yeah. He's he's at this restaurant. He's at this restaurant. Here are a couple from the restaurant where somebody is saying, "You can't come in here," and he asks the waitress if she has the number for the cops or something like that, and he says. Call them up and tell them there's two sorry-looking assholes here with multiple contusions and broken bones before he does anything to them. And then after he's basically forced a heart attack onto this crime boss, he walks out. Somebody says, what happened? He says, somebody grabbed their chest. They must have seen the bill. So you have this and rougher – And the crime boss, by the way, was Michael, Michael Gazzo from Godfather 2. <laughs> right. He fell quite a bit there. But you have this sort of rougher, tougher James Bond and. Callahan would probably even hurl some kind of homophobic slur at James Bond, right, too. Yeah. But, um, I mean, as, as the movie kind of goes on, we start to get into the commentary, the language again, like, I'm, like I said before. Uh, he gets to the first crime scene that we see. I really like this loudmouth. Well, I, I know where you're going with this because I wrote this one down, too. Well, <laughs> I really like this loudmouth, bumbling, eating, murdered, just complete slob of a detective. I, I think the term he uses, 38 caliber vasectomy. At the crime scene, and then somebody I think says later down the road, a cock shot stiff. <laughs> and uh, you get this monologue, and let me please recite this monologue here. Yeah. Uh, you get our first dose of commentary from Harry Callahan, where the detective asks him if this later Murray, latest murder, is starting to get to him. Harry responds this way. He says, this stuff isn't getting to me. He's being a smartass, by the way. The shootings, the knifings, the beatings, old ladies being bashed in the head for their social security checks, teachers being thrown out of a window because they didn't give A's. That doesn't bother me a bit. 
or this job either, having to wade through the scum of the city, being swept away by bigger and bigger waves of corruption, apathy, and red tape. No, that doesn't bother me. You know what makes me sick to my stomach? Then he does this, he says a few weird lines about a hot dog, and then he says, I'm talking about having our fingers in holes and the whole damn dikes crumbling around us. I mean, this screenwriter, Joseph Stinson, I think his name is, he must have felt like Dashiell Hammett when he wrote that. I can't believe you you skipped over nobody puts ketchup on a hot dog. I I wrote that down, (laughs) but it's just so stupid. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, it was. It's out of nowhere. Yeah, it, but that's a one-liner. They're throwing it in there, you know, as a as a joke, basically, in the middle of what you're what you're talking about, which is this like conservative manifesto about th- this idea of like teachers are being thrown out of windows because they didn't give A's and stuff. You know, it's it's crazy. It's a cruel world. Yeah, <laughs> this movie. <laughs> Really, probably had the laziest tagline maybe in film history. I don't know if you've seen it, but all it says on the poster is "Dirty Harry is at it again." <laughs> That's it. That pretty much says it all. You can tell we... about any sequel. Yeah. yeah, right. Here we go again. Yeah. But one thing I love about cop movies, and one thing you can always count on in these Harry Callahan movies, are several of these confrontational meetings between Harry and these bureaucratic city officials or his uh, superiors, where they start. The scene with them reprimanding Clint, but we end the scene with him saying things that would normally fire people had they said them to their superiors. I love it when we get that transition in this movie from his lieutenant telling him, ordering him to get you know get some peace and quiet, and then we go directly to the shot of Harry gearing up for target practice with another giant gun and what looks like a public park. There are, there are park benches out there, and he's got this huge pistol. Yeah. He's just, and this guy walks up on him with the shotgun and just starts blasting at the targets, too. <laughs> but uh, I don't that's know. Just what that's what you know, they're just friends, and that's what they do on the weekend. Yeah, they're buddies. Yeah, they just they bring you know, weapons to public parks and shoot at trees. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to I get into uh, – we talked about it before um, – and I don't want to get you too off track because I know you're we're going through the movie chronologically. But I want to get into Sandra Locke a little bit, okay? The, uh, the female lead here because I mean she's a huge part of the movie, and it's it's worth mentioning. And I, I go into this in my um, in my review a little bit more. But uh, this movie was actually made as a Sandra Locke vehicle, and mm. it was essentially adapted into a Dirty Harry movie. They sort mm. of tacked him in later. Uh, but but she's obviously a key component of the movie, and she's one of the main characters. And I, I don't know, Ben. Why don't you go into this this character a little bit? And and uh, I, I have a feeling just from your comments so far that you kind of have the same feelings about her that I do. Well, I, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't she and Clint Eastwood dating at the yes. time? Yes, they were. This that explains a lot. <laughs> Because it doesn't explain why Clint Eastwood would be dating someone who looks <laughs> like an alien, basically. Well, yeah, and before I get into the character, there are way too many distractions in most '80s movies, and the scenes, early, the scene early on with the sisters, I really couldn't stop thinking about like how bad their hair was, their clothes were. <laughs> Still, honestly, I, I really do like this plot about a rape victim exacting revenge on her attackers and her sisters' attackers. Though, if not careful, I mean, you really tread a little too deeply into Lifetime movie waters, which honestly is exactly what this movie does. And no offense to Eastwood, I get that he, you know, wants to put his 
his lady in a movie and everything, <laughs> and he's willing to. And, and uh, honestly, you have to think that from what you just told me, they wanted a Sandra Locke vehicle. It seems like they wouldn't really give it the green light unless Eastwood was attached to it. Well, my my understanding here is that essentially what happened there 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 was a screenplay here about Sandra Locke's character. She's a she's a rape victim who becomes sort of this vigilante. I mean, it's 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 honestly, I don't know if it's just Sandra Locke's very strange face to me, but it's really it's kind of a horrifying plot thread. I mean, it, it's it really is kind of scary because she's a little bit of a, uh, you know, she's kind of a serial killer almost, yeah. even though she has a reason for killing these people. Well, no, look, I mean, if this if this was a movie that was released today or released whenever, if it was made before, about a woman who was raped and she was going on this uh, violent rampage on the folks who raped her and maybe uh, people she knew who had raped others, I would see that movie for sure. I yeah, think it's, I I, I think but, it's an but interesting plot factor to it you know i mean it's definitely almost exploitation film absolutely territory well so so basically you've got that movie and uh what i my understanding of what happened is uh essentially you know there was some there was some the the studio was doing kind of some surveys uh about characters that that had a really strong um you know a really strong impression with audiences, basically asking audiences who are some, some of the great movie characters that you remember over the years that you like the most kind of asking them to rate them. And apparently dirty Harry came up on, on a lot of lists and came up so high that the studio started saying, look, uh, we need to, you know, we want you to make another dirty Harry movie and, and we just don't care how you do it, but put it together and get it out there fast. And I think this movie was probably, the Sandra Locke vehicle was far enough into motion that, and you can you can feel that her storyline is a lot more fleshed out and right. and in, and has a lot more to it, and that there's kind of these little bits of of Dirty Harry scenes, yeah, just thrown around, and there really isn't a cohesive Dirty Harry storyline. No. I don't think that this movie ever really makes an effort to tell any sort of comprehensible story. Other than hers. Well, yeah. we're here to see Clint shoot people and right. insult his bosses and these street punks. Honestly, if we really want to break it down uh, into any sort of plot, it's really about Harry Callahan hot on the trail of somebody who keeps shooting guys' balls off. Right. That is I mean, basically what's going it on. It is. I mean, the, the plot is so paper thin, it's either insulting or impressive. I can't decide. Which one? Well, and Robert, right Roger now. Ebert couldn't decide either, and he actually was fairly favorable about this movie in 1983. But he's—you can almost hear him throwing his hands up in his yeah. review. He's kind of—he gave like, it a good review. I read it. Yeah, he, he, he gave it three stars. And he's basically like, you know, look, this movie doesn't have any story to it. It doesn't right. make any sense. But I guess I don't care because it's it, still enjoyable. Right. It's eliminated the aspects of the previous Dirty Harry movies that were about plot and atmosphere. I think he says, and yeah. it, it's basically just guy gun shoot end um but i mean what what else did audiences really want yeah i think ebert even says it's a great audience picture because i mean i I was listening to the commentary and richard schickel does uh the commentary for this and god god love richard schickel for trying to make this thing sound more serious (laughs) than it really is but i think what what he said was is that there was there was anarchy in the world at this time and we needed a righteous hero like dirty harry to vanish or banish the anarchy 
uh, for us in our movie lives. Were things really that bad in 1983? Well, I was looking up 1983 stories, you know, news stories at the time. You should probably know more about this than me with this damn project that you're doing. <laughs> um, but I didn't really see anything. I mean, there were, you know, at the time that this movie was made, uh, the the most violent thing that I could find was this robbery in Seattle where like 14 people were killed or something like that. And it just seems like that might have come up during this movie at mm-hmm. some point because this was made, I think, spring of 1983, and that happened in like February 1983. But I didn't really see it pop up anywhere. But look, getting back to Sandra Locke really fast and sort of the themes that we have in this movie, this, this monologue – really sums it up. There's a point where Locke spins this incredibly dull monologue about the muddled US legal system right, yeah. and she follows that she follows that with this question. I'm not going to recite that monologue by the way, but she asks this question after it. She says, "Does that sound profound or just boring?" And that's about the easiest possible answer that we could give Eastwood <laughs> and the writers here. Her tilted delivery, I mean, it really doesn't help. But, yes, it is boring, even when Callahan is blasting these hoods all over the place with his bazooka pistol. But I guess – I don't know, man. I mean, it, there is entertainment value in this. What the, the most entertainment that I got out of this was just, like you said, watching Clint Eastwood walk around, blow people away small talk with his superiors and, you know, deliver these one-liners. I think he even has a catchphrase or a word throughout the movie. He keeps saying swell over and over. Yeah. And it's like, really, this guy's become like this lovable guy who owns a bulldog now, of all things. That and is, I that, think there's a that's point. That's when you know it's a sequel is that they give him a dog. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah this, this big gruff guy, but he's got a dog that he calls, the dog is Meathead, right? Right. And yeah. then he, he <laughs> apparently, apparently some bad guys have hurt the dog in some way. They never reveal it. They just show the no, dog walking lives. funny. Yeah. And Clint Eastwood gets super pissed off because it's like, okay, okay, let me ask you this this question. At, at any point in the movie, was there ever any point in the movie where you thought that the character Horace might live through this thing? I mean, right when he's introduced, I'm like, okay, this guy's gone. I, so, I was just about to say, and, and you know where that's going, is that – yeah, he definitely is more upset yes. that the dog is injured than that his like friend. My was best murdered. friend is on the ground, yeah. and he, yeah, he's just sort of staring blankly. But once he sees the dog, the you know shit's going down <laughs> right. at this point. But seriously, I mean, there are some lines in this uh, towards the beginning, I guess, when he's talking to these the again these bureaucratic city officials and these other police officers that he does not get along with, obviously. And one of them says to him. Callahan, your ideas don't fit today. It's a whole new ball game these days. And Dirty Harry says, funny, I never thought of it as a game. And look, it's not exactly the blueprint for Cormac McCarthy or No Country for Old Men, but the themes are sort of in the same ballpark. Only, you know, the sheriff in that story, unlike him, Callahan knows that he can sort of kick crime in the ass. I'm not sure what Clint's really trying to say uh, when Harry fights off several automatic weapons with his giant penis pistol that he keeps wielding over and over in the movie. But apparently that gets the job done in the face of any danger. Yeah. And you talk about his sort of conversations with the cops. Uh, yeah. There's a, I mean, like, look, every, every one of these movies has the stereotypical scene where the, you know, the boss says, you know, you're not playing by the rules. You're, I'm taking you off the case, that kind of stuff. He has an absurd number of scenes 
with his boss yeah. in this movie. It's like six scenes, yeah, and that's which a is lot. Pat Pat Hingle is the guy that plays the the uh, I guess Dirty Harry's boss who. Uh, you might remember he's he's the uh, he's Commissioner Gordon in yeah. Tim Burton and Schumacher Batman movies, so it, you know he looks like he, he he's probably played a police captain of some kind in in many many more movies than that too, but he I mean you, you're expected a couple of times the the thing, it gets really old after about the third time that you're hearing his boss <laughs> tell him off for his reckless disregard for for the rules you know. Well, one of them, I have a favorite, and I wrote this one down too, uh, where I can't remember which one says it because several of them reprimand him and talk down to him. Right. One of them says, you're a walking freaking combat zone. People have a nasty habit of getting dead around you. (laughs) (laughs) And you you know what? I mean, just kind of while we're talking about it, I, I really sort of asked myself several times during this movie, where's the sudden impact? It's a totally arbitrary title for a yeah. movie. Yeah, there, they it doesn't have to do. I mean, you could have named it anything. I would have named it "Violent Crimes in Broad Daylight," <laughs> and no one. Yeah, there's never any mention of. Uh, there's there's one scene where he's being attacked, I guess, in his apartment building, and <laughs> he straight up shoots a guy in the hallway. And then just like it seems like he just goes back about his business, and like yeah. none of his neighbors came out. No, there's no mention of like this <laughs> dead body in the hallway of his apartment building. Right, there's no crime scene. He just <laughs> winks at his dog or something and walks back into the apartment. Right. Um, but there are these little things I love about this movie. Uh, things I really did enjoy. It's part of this era of what were modern films in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s when films were just fundamentally unafraid of profanity. When you walk into a mainstream action movie starring a Hollywood icon and you hear the lines, suck my ass through a straw, or <laughs> you got shit in your ears, buddy, like it was nothing. I mean, they, they throw these lines away like it was nothing. But I think I mean, it had a made bigger, $70 million. And I think it had a bigger impact when you look at movies. I mean, I think it really started to come out in the 80s. 83 is kind of really getting there and i'd say the next two years or so after the 84 and 85 it's even more prevalent you know where you get to like die hard where the catchphrase of the movie has has the mother of profanities in it but you know the basically i think what was going on is people were still a little bit uh you know there still really was a shock factor to profanity back then and i don't think it really is the case today i think when people use profanity excessively today, it can be done in a funny way and it can have an impact, but it's nowhere near the impact that it, it probably had in the, in the late 70s and early 80s where, you know, people had really grown up their whole lives. And, you know, probably when you're old enough to go to R-rated movies, that's probably the first time a lot of people heard this kind of language on, a, on this, you know, at least at – least from kind of a mainstream media source, you know, because there well, was no – it certainly wasn't ever coming out like that on TV or, or the radio or music or anything like that. Well, I think that film writers – you know, film in general has sort of gotten less creative with its profanity as the years go by. I mean, you know, you you hear lots of different lines like the ones I mentioned, many, many more uh, from men and women. There's this one incredibly profane female character – in yeah. the movie, who has a lot of great lines? What's, but, what's I mean, her What's her name in the movie? Uh, I, I don't remember. It's Ray, actually, yeah. Well, all they I, I think they referred to to her as the lesbian over and over. Right. Um, but she's but, basically the the character who is 
sort of responsible for uh, yeah. the two girls getting raped. Yeah. She, yeah, she instigates it, right. I guess. But, I mean, you compare that with, say, like Jonah Hill saying the F word, uh, you know, after every, you know, it, seemingly in every sentence, it just sort of gets old and tired. It doesn't really make me laugh just because he's saying the F word. But it seems like in this film, some of these lines just wouldn't work without the profanity that they have. I would not be as impacted by that as I would. And look, I'm a child of the 90s and uh, the last decade where, I mean, you hear profanity every day. There's profanity in, in, in pretty much every movie that you see that's rated PG-13 and beyond. Yet when I watch this, it makes me laugh. It gets a rise out of me. And I think it's more carefully considered. I think that's why. I, I think the fact that profanity had a bigger impact uh, when they made these movies means that the way that those words were used, there was probably more thought put into it than there than there is today when you see profanity in movies. And I, I think that's why, yeah, I, I have the same reaction. I laugh at a lot of the the ultra profane lines from '80s movies too, and it's because it's because it's effective. It's because it kind of hits you and you go, "Man, he meant it," you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think the the most hilarious line, and it was probably the most hilarious way I've ever seen anybody answer a phone, is when. This guy picks up and just says, "Who the fuck is this?" <laughs> right after he's almost, right after he's almost raped that hooker. Right, and there's really not much that suggests he doesn't go on to rape her either, <laughs> given his behavior right. and you know the fact that he's in control of that situation. But sort of getting into the villain and the rest of the characters, like you said, the only fleshed out characters in this are Harry, who's already been established with three other movies, and then Sandra Locke's character. But I guess at some point. Eastwood figured he probably needed a villain and one that we'd feel a little bit better better about seeing blown away with that fancy big gun that he shows off in the woods. Because through most of the movie, I think we're sort of led to believe that Sandra Locke is going to be the villain. Um, and that's just not really working, especially when they try and develop this incredibly mm-hmm. weak romance subplot between Eastwood and that character. Right, but, and even though she is a multiple murderer who kills... I think all of her victims right. in cold blood. As in other words, it is not in combat. They are not armed. She right. just shoots unarmed. She people. straight up murders them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the one he picked obviously was the crazy rapist. You know, the really dangerous rapist right. out of the band of rapists. And I mean, he suddenly gets developed slightly, very late into the movie. And I was going to ask you too. Did this guy remind you of Will Forte at all? It seemed like Will Forte could have played this <laughs> just guy. with the over intense acting. Yeah. yeah, and he looked kind of like him too. But yeah. look, these actors that Eastwood hired must have really helped get the movie made too. I mean, there's a scene where one of the rapists whisper begs for his life. That scene gave me the creeps. You know, he she meets him in the garage. He didn't sound genuine at all when he's begging for his life not to be killed because he was younger. That was 10 years ago. He sounded like a rapist creep the way he said that. So it's like, of course <laughs> she's going to keep shooting you because the way you're speaking right now is reminding her of that time that you raped her. Yeah, I um, and I, I particularly – you talk about the, the, the ultimate, you know, the big bad guy basically. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's kind of – that whole thing wraps up. I felt like really quickly. I mean, I feel like when we get the resolution, mm-hmm. it jumps back out of it. Like, I mean, there's not a lot of time to sort of savor the big resolution moment. And, and you really even see it. I mean, 
I, maybe I just am, maybe I've just seen enough of these movies to have been a, a little had had too much foresight. But really, there, there's there's one good shot of that unicorn on the on the carousel, and you know where it's all going from there. I mean, it's over. You know how it's going to end. Yeah, uh, let's go over this final kill really fast. <laughs> um, and, and and let's preface this: I, I really hope Eastwood wasn't going for some kind of like Hitchcock thing with the carousel. And those flat bad guys that are looking for Sandra Locke, you know, she's hiding through the carousel. I didn't really dig that imagery. I think Eastwood was being a little overzealous there. It just wasted time until Callahan got there with his piece anyway. But this final kill, this guy gets shot like five times. He falls into the lights and gets electrocuted. He falls through a glass ceiling like 50 feet below him and then is impaled on this merry-go-round unicorn. I mean, it's got to be one of the like most elaborate villain deaths ever. At least nothing happened to his balls, though. <laughs> well, that's true. That's probably disappointing for the yeah, Sandra Locke for character. Sandra Locke failed. Right he should have yeah. shot him in the balls with that big revolver, you know? Right. Because of, or sh- he should have let her. He should have been like, here, use mine. <laughs> you know? He's the only one who gets away with his genitalia intact in this movie. Well, and speaking of which, Eastwood actually has the nerve to stick that damn forty-four Magnum Auto Mag into his pants at the end of the movie. Where I don't remember that. Oh yeah, the 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 gun is sticking out of his pants, like you know, in his belt, like his front belt. Right. It you know it, it's right there, looking erect. I mean, and also think, think it back. Was intentional for oh, sure? come on! Yeah. Think back to the opening credits too. We're hovering over this city. He he picks several tall buildings to sort of fly over. They stand out I don't from know, their. Man. It could have been subconscious. Dude, from man. their surrounding buildings, they they really sort of resemble gun barrels too. I mean, yeah. come on! But and, and another thing about that climax too. They're they're leaving. And this cop who I, I think he's been talking to, this little cop whose life he apparently saved, uh, he just walks up to him and he says, uh, so what's the deal, Callahan? And Callahan's like, well, I think those casings match the gun. And, uh, you know, he basically frames the bad guy for the crimes committed by Sandra Locke, and right? Let's, and, and let's say multiple murderer walk. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and and then uh, the the little cop just goes, then it's over? <laughs> and then that's it. Yeah, that it, is it. Yeah, the, the plot it, it's over. Cut to the credits. And again, I'm listening to this Rick, Richard Schickel commentary uh, towards the end of it. And I'll, I'll, l- let me just uh, read you a couple of things that he says. He says this movie uh, brings us to a certain amount of thoughtfulness, useful unease. This was a giant step forward directorially for Clint. Risking an artiness of some sort, something he wasn't fond of doing, he signals his ambitions. Then he wants to move beyond that. He mo- that he wants to move beyond mere genre filmmaking. Following films, uh, yeah, these film the film his following films spoke of a new ambition to move beyond simple genre work. Um, in that he's interested in wider emotions and human behavior starting with this movie and up to now into his film you know his filmography i mean this is That's just giving ridiculous him a lot of credit, oh, man, god. For, for, oh god oh god yeah and honestly I, mean, I, I would I wish... agree i would agree that he had not done a lot of artsy directing up to that point oh, no. uh, but i i really i don't think anybody would would uh reasonably say that Eastwood tried to get into serious filmmaking as a director until Unforgiven, which is basically ten years later. After well, this movie. I don't know. I'd go back a little, a little further than that. I think that White Hunter Black Heart, the movie where he basically plays John Huston, 
which is basically about the filming of the African Queen. I think that's serious directing. It's a serious performance, and it's serious directing. So, and even his debut, Play Misty for Me, that's one of my favorite movie, yeah, movies. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's well done, and, and that that movie gets a lot of praise. I think it's probably more fair to say Play Misty for Me is kind of a really, uh, really well done, really professionally done uh, thriller. Uh, and certainly, I think, you know, I don't know, I think Sudden Impact probably not fair to go after Eastwood's directing as much as it is. I mean, it's a, it's kind of a sloppily put together production because it was obviously, uh, it, it was obviously sort of pieced together from different things for commercial purposes. You know, it, it was a movie that's trying to capitalize on something that the studio realized that, you know, was in high public demand. Uh, so they, so they took some things they had available. They kind of threw them together and, you know, I, I think I think obviously people were hungry for it. They were right, uh, and and you know it seemed to be relatively well reviewed. But I think watching it today, watching it uh, as somebody who isn't someone who's like particularly excited about the franchise or anything, it, it certainly comes off as a a sloppy movie. I don't think it stands alone very well. Would Would you agree with that? No, totally. It's a genre B movie. It really is, and I mean, I think it is slightly self-aware of what it's trying to do. Again, I think that is pretty evident in a lot of the quips that Eastwood has. And you got to give Eastwood a lot of credit. I mean, at this point, he's worked with a lot of great directors. He's made several films, and he's made four or three before this, three of these Dirty Harry movies. So I think he knows exactly what he's doing. And obviously he does because, I mean, he gave people what they wanted in just this ridiculous shoot 'em up non-plot something you could mistake for a softcore porn movie every now and then uh, without the sex. You know, it's like, seriously, I mean, uh, it's just bad sometimes, really. The Sandra Locke stuff, I mean, yes, it was his, It was his. Um, you know, it was the woman he dated at that point, and clearly that's the reason she got the role. Uh, she's a pretty big deal, man. I mean, I, you know, look, I'm with you. I, I don't enjoy she was bad. her performance. She, this was an Oscar-nominated actress, and she was in a no, lot of No, what did she get nominated for? Uh, it was in the late 60s. It, it's a, it was a, uh, a movie called um, – uh, hang on. Was she a child actress? No, it, was, it, was, it wasn't a child role. Um, hang on. I've got I've to find it here. Well – <laughs> yeah, it's obviously not jumping out in my mind. It's called The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Okay. Uh, she was pretty young when it came out. I, I don't know if it would be called a child actress role. but uh... Well, you know, I really honestly, I mean, you talk about these genre pictures that he was so used to. I, when I take a look at Clint Eastwood's early work and even some of his later work as an actor and director, I sometimes think that I think that he was sort of one of the pioneers of the slasher genre or this really sort of the horror genre as it sort of came to be in modern times. Obviously, with Play Misty for Me, you have this this stalker film, uh, something that we've seen a lot of. And, you know, I I can't really think of a lot of examples like Single White Female and um, this movie, The Roommate, that came out. I don't know if they would admit that it was a Clint Eastwood homage but um you know you've got things like blood work even absolute power in this movie where you have these 
genre conventions that he tends to use, like uh, the damsels in distress in dark houses. You have the POV shots of killers sort of creeping upon these people and some creepy music, too. So I think that Clint Eastwood should get a little bit of credit along with John Carpenter for some establishing some of these horror conventions that we now see. Yeah, and I don't I don't know if this was intentional or not, but I, I mentioned, I mean, there's, there's some moments in, in the Sandra Locke storyline that are legitimately – uh, disturbing. To oh me. yes, and really. The early the, there's an early scene. It's it's when we meet the comatose sister, <laughs> and I mean it almost feels like a David Lynch type thing. That you know it, it's just so odd and and uh, and just something just feels wrong about that scene where where she's uh, you know she's sort of creepily whispering to her comatose sister who's just sort of staring there drooling. Yeah, and she's talking about how she's gonna. She's gonna murder these guys right. who did that to them. I mean, it, it's it's horror film stuff for sure. Yeah, and the you know there's a flashback rape sequence too right. that we see. And honestly, as I was watching and as I think about it now, I, I think back to that movie The Crow, which I think came out in either '94 maybe '93 uh, with Brandon Lee, Bruce Lee's son. I don't know if you ever saw that. No, um, I haven't. It's a, seen it's a really good movie. It's adapted. Uh, it, it adapts a pretty obscure comic, I think. Um, Directed by Alex Proyas. Anyway, there's a rape sequence in that too that's filmed in a very similar way where you have this like red tint, I guess, and you see the POV shot of the person who is getting raped. You see these creepy rapists sort of laughing and hovering over them. Um, so I, I think know, that's actually probably something Tarantino – I mean I, I, I mentioned Tarantino. That was a right. little slip of the tongue, but he did it too. I, I think it's something Eastwood probably got from the spaghetti westerns that, that yeah. he worked on because you, you get a lot of that in those movies of – uh, those sort of flashback sequences of something mm-hmm. terrible that's motivating the character. So sure, absolutely. So I, I don't know. This movie might be a little too a little more influential than we want to believe. <laughs> because look, I there are things that I do like about it. Like I said, you know, you sort of what you said at the beginning. This being a time capsule, uh, this, the the profanity that I mentioned, the the fast, you know, sort of talking. Pot boiler dialogue that we get in some places that I think is used for humorous purposes. Again, like that monologue at the beginning with the hot dog line, that kind of thing. There are things to like about this movie. And even if it's not necessarily uh, just sort of watching Clint Eastwood blow people away, um, there's merit, I guess. But I, like you said, I don't, I don't think I understand yet why this movie made $70 million. Yet, I, you know, Part of me also doesn't understand why Fast and the Furious Five makes eighty something million dollars during its first weekend. You know what I mean? I guess simple thrills sometimes are really what audiences want and need, depending on the time of the year. Look, man, all, all I've got to say to that is that last week my movie was Staying Alive, <laughs> and that that made pretty close to the same amount of money that Sudden Impact did. I mean, look. Franchises did well. In fact, there's uh, there's an article that uh, in the New York Times in 1983, among some of these other reviews that I've read, there, there's an article in there about kind of the the power of the sequel and and what a trend that's becoming in 1983. And uh, you know, uh, the studios were starting to realize that this was money for old rope. It was easy easy to produce. You didn't need high quality high caliber talent that that basically you could go and make a movie that would be treated 
as though it were the original successful movie, mm-hmm. despite the fact that you didn't have all the same pieces there. Um, and and so you know, I, I think it's I think it's th- this is this is a time before audiences became discerning and aware that sequels. Uh, weren't always as good as the original. It, you know, it wasn't a generally accepted fact yet that sequels were not as good as the original. Yeah, but what fourth movie, what third sequel in a franchise can you think of where it spawned as iconic of a phrase like "Go ahead, make my day"? Oh, it was a big one, and that, yeah, people don't realize. I think a lot that 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 phrase actually came from the fourth movie in yeah. the franchise. Oh, they yeah. always associated with the first film, right? But I think that's probably uh, this movie – obviously this movie's biggest claim to fame even though it doesn't really get the credit for it. It's mm-hmm. just really another Dirty Harry movie. It's just another cop movie honestly. And what I look for again and with these gritty crime dramas that I really wanted to embrace and explore, ones like The French Connection, Serpico, and Narc, I wanted something unique. I wanted something um, – that was intense. I wanted a story that I really could latch onto and believe in and uh, where I could buy the, the, the mission and the purpose of the characters. I didn't get that with sudden impact, unfortunately, so I'm going to have to keep searching for that. It's sort of just another one of those TV movie cop action dramas. Um, and that's really, I mean, again, there, there's some can't value for sure, but there's not much else I'm going to remember about this movie other than it being another Dirty Harry film. Well, Ben, I think that about wraps it up, man. Thanks for joining me for this. And uh, next week, we will be looking at our second James Bond film of 1983, Octopussy. Uh, podcasting partner to be determined still. I'm uh, I'm working on that one, but looking forward to it. I'm, uh, uh, you know... I'm getting I'm getting towards the top five, which I'm really excited about here. The the top five are all I'm just looking ahead at it. They're all movies that I really want to watch, and, I, and that movies that I think I'm going to really enjoy getting into. And I'm not going to have to be talking about them from an ironic standpoint like we are today. So I'm get, I'm getting close to the end of that phase. You're almost there. You're almost there. Yep. Unbelievable. All right. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thanks for having me. <laughs>